Welcome to episode 111 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Relationship building. What does that even mean? For me, it means adding small bits of value whenever I can. My clients have a hard time with this at first. They tell me about the times they've tried to add value in some little or big way, only to have their efforts ignored. Ah, they're attached to the outcome. Here's a pro tip. Don't be attached to the outcome. Just become the person who thinks to add value and it's amazing what becomes possible. Not usually in a tit-for-tat transactional kind of way. That would be hoping for a specific outcome and that will likely lead to disappointment and a reluctance to keep making an effort to connect with someone or deepen an existing connection. It really is a question of what becomes possible. Let me give you an example of how this played out recently in my life. My first book was published just over a year ago. Nearly a year later, a reader sent me a message through my website contact form titled, You've changed my life. He shared specific ways my book helped him transform his way of thinking, including saying, it inspired me to overcome my anxiety and gave me the tools to have meaningful conversations. He then asked if I would make time to be interviewed for a virtual summit he was launching later this summer. Of course, I said yes. After the interview, I asked who else he had lined up as speakers, and he listed a lot of men. So I asked if he was looking for women to share their expertise, and he said yes, he'd love introductions. So I posted a note in a Facebook community I'm active in and specifically encouraged women in the group to reach out about being interviewed on this virtual summit. Out of 23 speakers, 10 ended up being women, and I knew eight of them and found out the other two were invited by the women I had encouraged to apply. They could stop there, but the ripple effect of that reader reaching out to me keeps going because several of the women finally figured out how to share a freebie with the virtual summit listeners in a way that will help them grow their email list. This is a bit of technology they had been meaning to set up, but having a deadline helped them get it done. And of course, there are all the people who tuned into the summit and benefited from the wisdom that was shared by myself and the other speakers. And I've strengthened my relationship with each of these women by making this connection for them. All of this value was added in several different ways because a reader dared to reach out, say thank you, and invite me to participate in a project he was working on. Your challenge for this week. Have you ever thought about reaching out to an influencer in your field because you admire their work and want to say thank you? Perhaps your life or business has been improved because of a book you read, a podcast you listened to, or some other piece of content that someone labored to put out into the world. Do you find yourself holding back from reaching out because you don't want to bother them? Step out of your own way and reach out. Start by thanking them with some specificity and then make your ask if you have one. Don't be attached to the outcome. Be open to what becomes possible. You never know the ripple effect your actions may have. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now onto this week's show. Today's guest learned through a family health crisis how crucial human connection is and became an expert on how effective leaders can boost human connection in cultures to improve the health and performance of individuals and organizations. 
For more than a decade, he and his colleagues have worked with a wide variety of business, government, healthcare, and education organizations to boost connections in their culture. They share best practice attitudes, language, and behavior to create what he calls connection cultures that have propelled the success of teams and organizations, including the Rock Band U2, Costco, the U.S. Navy, NASA, and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. His message resonated so strongly that Texas Christian University founded the TCU Center for Connection Culture based on his work. He is the author of two books, Connection Culture and Fired Up or Burned Out. Please join me in welcoming Michael Lee Stollard. Hello, Robbie. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, I know that you're in your home office in Greenwich, Connecticut. I appreciate that you're able to tune in like this. I want to just jump right in. This is a podcast about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, leadership to me, and I'm saying good leadership, is really comes out of a leader who, number one, cares about people. And number two, cares about results. And it's usually because the results are helping people in some way. So it's deeply rooted in their care for people. And that's the type of leader who people follow. You know, Mm. there are people in formal leadership roles that have authority, but unless they care about people and care about results, then people won't follow, follow them in a sustainable way. And I started learning these lessons from uh, really from my early years, I worked at Texas Instruments and uh, my first leadership role was uh, in a financial position, a controller for a small group of TI. And uh, that's when I started learning that I really connected with people and uh, attracted good people who worked in the business. And so um, over time, I can't say I fully understood why at the time, but Uh over time that's become clear to me why why it's so important. So if we dug further back and we started to think about who you were when you were really little, when you're on the playground or in high school, college, like in those years, those formative years, were you like actively engaged? Were you the kind of person who sought leadership opportunities, you know, in a formal way? Did other people see that in you? Or were you like kind of watching the room from like the corner? Well, I, I was a quiet kid. So, um, and my life evolved, really revolved around uh, baseball season, basketball season, and uh-huh. football season. So, um, you know, sports was, um, and all team sports until I, uh, at some point I switched and really developed an interest in tennis. Um, but all those times of playing team sports, I um, just connected with people and and I loved being a part of the team. Mm-hmm. Um so that's, that's, I think when I started, th- those were important experiences for me to understand just the importance of connection. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. So you actually, your thoughts go back to this idea of being part of a team, being part of a unit, um, being, you know, working together towards a common goal. Mm-hmm. You know, you were very drawn to that even at an early age to, to have that experience. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I, we collected baseball cards and, you know, we were big uh, Packers fans and we lived in Northern Illinois close to Wisconsin. And that was the age of Bart Starr and Vince Lombardi. And so uh, it seemed like all these guys we worshiped had crew cuts and <laughs> they, yeah. uh, and my, my dad uh, was a tool and die maker. He fixed hot rods um, 
you know, rebuilt hot rubs. Uh, that was a hobby for him. So mm-hmm. it was a very patriarchal culture. Um, but it, it still, there was a strong sense of community, uh, primarily through sports. So was there a leader or anyone that you knew early on that you really looked up to and you thought like, I hope to be like that person one day? Well, it definitely would have been leaders in sports that I, yeah. I was a Cub fan, a Packers fan. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I, you know, one of the people I, I really, um, admired on the Chicago Cubs was Ernie Banks, who was, a uh, very outgoing, friendly person. He just seemed to be the person on the team that people pulled around. And during mm-hmm. that time, during that period, Robbie, they had um, a curmudgeon for a manager, a guy named Leo DeRocher, who was not a very good leader. I'm, I'm sure he had great skills in terms of baseball. But I think there was a lot of informal leadership in the captains of the team, guys like mm-hmm. Ernie Banks and Ron Santo. And they were just better at connecting with people than DeRocher was. He just used his power to really push people. But they weren't following him because they wanted to. They, follow, they were following him because they had to. I love that you have this distinction. And I'm wondering when you started to see this idea of informal leadership. Were you even aware then that there was a difference between how the, the formal leader uh, was sort of leading and whether people wanted to follow them or not and then the more informal leadership that these captains had? You know, I don't know how aware I was of it. I could tell that, um, you know, there were certain leaders who it was all about power and mm-hmm. they tended to be jerks. And there were leaders who people were just drawn to because they were good people and they pulled the team together and the team cre- achieved great things together because of that informal leadership. Not that they necessarily were leading from a position of power, mm-hmm. but they were the individuals that people rallied around. Mm-hmm. They pulled the team together. And I imagine that in today's work that you do, you still you still see the importance of those roles and you try to give people sort of the supports to 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 take on that informal leadership when they see the opportunity. Well, I, I'm, I learned this the hard way, Robbie. You know, there were years when um, I used to go after clients where I could see they needed a better culture, they needed better leadership. But um, I found that my work didn't really resonate with them. And then it was through interactions I had with um, Vern Clark. He's a former chief of naval operations. He's actually the second longest ser- serving chief in the U.S. Navy. And uh, I got to know him when I wrote an article about how he um, really changed the culture of the Navy. And um, it, he came in in 2000 um, when the Navy's first term enlistment was under, under 20%. So if you can imagine, 80% of the uh, enlisted sailors were leaving at the first opportunity. That's a huge problem, right? Yeah. And um, he changed the Navy's culture so that first term enlistment went up to almost 70% within about 18 months. And he was a guy who really loved sailors and their families. People, he called them, you know, um, uh, America's sons and daughters and people who serve a cause greater than self. And Vern and his wife, Connie, they just so clearly love sailors and they really cared about them. And 9-11, of course, happened during that period. Um, but Admiral Clark's a great leader. And he gave me some advice one time. I remember I was having uh, dinner with Vern and Connie at the Navy Yard in D.C. And he said, you know, Mike, just focus on leaders who, who really, um, you know, they're already doing what you're describing because you'll help them be better because you're providing a clear framework and a vocabulary that will mm. make clear what they're doing. 
and mm-hmm. it'll help them really develop the future leaders of the organization and they'll embrace it. And that's turned out to be good advice. So that's what I do now is I don't really work with any leaders unless they care about people and care about results. This is really interesting because if the, if the company uh, was culture needed to be shifted, but they, they weren't already doing some of it, there's resistance because that no one wants to start from a deficit and need to be fixed. But if you go to someone and you say, okay, you're, you're already doing a lot of great things, but let me give you the framework and a language and some direction and some benchmarks and some ways to like make this a process that you could share. Like they're like, Oh, I could get even better. And like, of course people are more, and it's such good. I wanted to like rename that because the Admiral had some great advice because I think a lot of times those of us who are doing consulting and coaching, we, we see the deficits because we see, you know, we know our work. (laughs) So we know the people who need us most, but those are often people who are not ready. So what a lesson for you to learn and I, I imagine that once you sort of change the course of that for your own business, you start to see better sort of uh, responses to your own overtures to like working with clients. Is that true? Is people start to want to connect and engage with what you're saying? Yeah. And, you know, just to give you an example. So I got a call from my publisher saying Costco bought a thousand copies of your book. And I, you know, my first reaction was, wow, are they selling it? And they said, no, they're using it. Ah. And uh, so, I, you know, I paused and I thought, okay, actually, that may actually be better <laughs> than if they're selling it. Ah. But then, you know, they probably would buy 10,000 copies if they, uh, if they were selling it. Um, but what I, what I found was, um, as I connect, reached out to Costco, what they told me was that um, they loved the Connection Culture book because it described their culture, even though they weren't in it. And they said, it's, you know, connection is at the heart of our culture. It's what's made us successful. It's why we retain 95% of our employees, you know, our uh, employees who are not in a supervisory position, we retain 95%, which is, you know, multiples above what most people in that industry retain. So it gives them um, uh, an advantage from an economic standpoint and just, you know, retaining people with good skills. So I just found a tr- an amazing story in uh, Jim Senegal, who was the co-founder of Costco. Um, when he was 18 years old, he met Saul Price, who became his lifelong mentor. And Saul was the guy who started the membership uh, warehouse concept. And uh, they were just lifelong friends. He always said that Saul always Saul's motto was do the right thing. And that's become the motto for Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie um, about the the Boston um, Marathon bombing, but you remember the there was a, a supervisor from Costco who mm. went to the guy to you know to make sure he got his benefits and he was taken care of, and that really reflects. It's funny, a little thing like that reflects the culture of Costco that they they do the right thing. They take care, good care of their members, which are you know it's a membership. Um, system. So it's like their clients, they take good care of their employees. They pay much higher than competitors in the industry, but they also care about them. They really try to cultivate people, train them to move up as high as they want to. And it's just a good company. I, as a member, a longtime member of Costco, I feel like I can trust people who run a company like that. They can do the right thing in terms of making sure the food they sell is not uh, tainted in some way that, um, that the products they uh, they vet from a safety standpoint, you just you build some trust in them, 
And yeah. um, that's the type of, type of client I like to work with. You know, I'm, it's interesting because I saw a documentary about sort of how Costco chooses some of their products. It was one of those behind the scenes. And my wife was like, oh, I saw this once. We have to watch it. And so, you know, once we saw that, when, we, when we're deciding, like, uh, what are we going to buy? And then we're like, well, let's just see if Costco already has it. And rather than doing like 16 hours of research, we're like, well, they've already done all that research. Let's just go with that. And like, it's a certain level of trust. And it's interesting that, of course, that doesn't live just in the how they acquire products. This has to be how they treat everybody in that ecosystem or it wouldn't work. You can't just be focused on, you know, having the best toy or something. And like the people are upset, you know, who are working for you. Like you have to be well-rounded. You must be um, so gratified that you're now having these companies sort of be attracted now to you because this book's been out for a little while. Um, They're seeing, you know, you're seeing some results. What is it that you're sort of, what's most rewarding about the work you're doing today? Well, it's the, it's the people I work with. They, they're inspiring to be around. You know, I think of Victor Bashini, the chancellor of Texas Christian University. You know, this is a school that's getting 20,000 applications for 1,800 freshman seats because the word's gotten out. I think, you know, they, they're really moving quickly up the uh, rankings, uh, both academically and athletically. And he is a leader. He's such a, a connector. He really cares about students. He still teaches a class, a freshman seminar, and um, he knows so many students' names. Well, he cares about students, faculty, and staff, and he walks the talk. Or um, we do work with the ambulatory care group at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We work with them. Actually, writing a story right now about Rosanna Fahey, who runs the group that we work with. It's about 3,000 people in 16 locations. And Rosanna started out as um, a volunteer. She was a student at Fordham University. She was taking a philosophy class on death and dying. And part of the class requirement was to work at a hospice. Mm. Well, she wasn't interested in that. So she worked on an agreement with the professor to volunteer at Sloan Kettering. And she went there and ended up working in the pediatric cancer ward, just playing with kids. And that her, that semester, she had an assignment to write a paper about her experience, but it just affected her in such a deep way that she couldn't process the feelings she had about kids and serving and connecting with them and their family members that she ended up dropping the class, but she tripled her volunteer hours at Sloan uh-huh. Kettering. Well, 25 years later, she's one of the highest ranking women in the organization. And she really cares about connecting with, you know, even she, although she has this huge responsibility, you know, you'll see her around Sloan Kettering, she'll stop and see if somebody has a question or they're lost or they need help getting somewhere. Cause you know, it's a big, it's a big, uh, organization that's spread out in Manhattan and she walks the talk. She connects with people and uh, really expects people on the front lines of medicine to reach out to connect with patients and their family members because we know from research and experience that that reduces stress and improves patient outcomes. Well, and I know that this is a very personal thing for you to be able to support this organization that your, your wife has had a couple of really scary uh, moments with cancer. Uh, how is she, she doing now? She's doing great. Yeah, actually, we work together, and That's uh, so yeah, it's uh, Katie's a three-time cancer survivor. So it, it is amazing because there was a time, Robbie, when her chances of survival for more than five years was less than ten percent. 
So it's, uh, it's a miracle that she's alive. And uh, at that time, our daughters were just 12 and 10. So it's, uh, you know, our oldest daughter just got married in December. And every big event like that, I just say, you know, thank you, God, that Katie is alive and is able to see this. And mm-hmm. the girls have had this really wonderful mother growing up. So, so it brings a lot of gratitude in my life. That yeah. Well, alive. and you were, that's where you start in the book. You share the story of how you saw this connection taking place in a cancer center which if you've never been in one, you think, oh, it must be such a somber, like kind of dreary, <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, oh, you know, it's like, it doesn't sound like a place you want to hang out. But then you went there and you, you saw just every time, like people were just so giving and so loved what they did and, and that impact it then had, the ripple effect it had on people that sounded like it was an incredibly profound moment for you. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Let me just take people back to, I remember the first time we went to Sloan Kettering, it was just for a consultation, but we, we parked the car, we're walking down the street toward the entrance on 53rd Street across from City uh, Corp Center. For those who've been in New York City, you probably know the building I'm talking about. And as we entered, uh, we got within eyesight of, the entrance, a doorman named Nick Medley locked his eyes on Katie. And as you and I know, being from this area and large cities, people don't make eye contact in the street. So it was unusual to see Nick, you know, but obviously he spotted Katie and he could tell she was wearing a wig. So he just greeted her with such warmth and, um, it, uh, it really caught my attention. Uh, I, I, it took me a little while to realize what was going on, but, um, We've, you know, he's still uh, on the front lines of medicine. We see him when we're there, whether we're uh, teaching a workshop or Katie's there for a checkup. Um, but then we entered into the reception area. The receptionist was calling everyone honey, also very unusual in Manhattan. And the security people, the um, administrative people were helpful and friendly. Our oncologist, um, Dr. Marty Hensley, spent an hour with us. She was upbeat and optimistic. She told Katie not to look at the statistics or anything online that she was not a statistic and people do survive this disease. And um, just by the end of the day, I came away with realizing two things. One, I knew in advance going in that this was one of the best teams from a competence standpoint to Mm -hmm. treat advanced ovarian cancer. Right. But the second realization really caught me by surprise. And that was, I knew they cared. Mm. And that made a difference. It just made me more optimistic, Robbie, that maybe we could get Katie through this. And, you know, that was, um, that happened back in 2014. I'm sorry, in 2004. And so, you know, all these years later, uh, Katie's a, a survivor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going through that experience and getting that kind of caring support and you being able to you know, a lot of people have gone through that experience and gotten that caring support. But the fact that you're able to then translate that into something you could then teach others, that's interesting to me because you clearly, you saw something and you were like, okay. And you you already knew a little bit from your earlier um, career that you, you know, being a connector, people being like willing to kind of rally around you and, and the ideas that you had was important. How did you take that leap. I get this question myself, like, how did you know you wanted to teach this thing, which is so amorphous to other people? Like, how did you know this is a thing that people, I mean, 
You know, do you know what I'm asking? I I, I do. You know, it's a crazy journey I went on. It just, it almost seems impossible in hindsight that this happened, but um, it was, you know, I had drifted away from connection in my life and um, it, it really, um, the, the drift was maximized during a period when I was working on a very difficult merger Um, It was around the time of September 11. So I think people were traumatized in New York City from what happened. And I know, uh, you know, I, we know people who lost their lives. uh, Also people who lost family members, who lost uh, children, who lost parents during that. So it was, it was a tough season, but I was working so hard on this particular merger that it crowded out time for family and friends and even when I was home, I was thinking about how to crack the code on this thing and make it work. And um, my performance, my health started declining. I wasn't performing as well. Uh, I wasn't, you know, playing at the top of my game, so to speak. And um, I, after about a year, I really lost hope that this merger was going to work. And you know, six months later, they fired the CEO, one of the CEOs, and ended up selling the company. Um, but I left, and um, of course, about that time, I got offered to join Goldman Sachs, which I turned down because I knew it would just burn me out. I wasn't in a position to, to do that. And so I uh, really started digging into the research and trying to understand why mergers were not working. And I started, it really led me to a place that wasn't on my radar screen, which is the importance of relationships and just how we're hardwired to connect. And it's very relevant today, Robbie, because we're going through a time where there's an epidemic of loneliness in America and yes, other countries around the world. Uh, Cigna just released research in, on May 1st that showed, um, they used the UCLA loneliness scale, which is the gold standard of loneliness assessments. And they surveyed 20,000 American adults and found that the average response was um, above the threshold that they consider lonely, which is very bad from a health standpoint because that's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's actually worse than obesity in terms of its effect on uh, just raising um, your risk for early death. And people who have high connection in their lives have a 50% reduced risk of early death versus uh, the average person. So uh, connection has, you know, I call it, it's a superpower that makes us smarter, happier, um, and more productive. And isolation, whether it's um, through social isolation where we are alone or loneliness where we feel alone, even if we're around people, both of those are lethal in terms of their effect on our productivity, our happiness, and our lifespan. So that you've, you, I feel like you've made a really clear case for why people should on an individual level, strive for connection. But I also know how hard it is for somebody who's gotten into that rut that you just described, um, where you're just so focused on your job and you've sort of forgotten to nurture and sustain the connections around you. And once you're in that sort of downward spiral, I think it's hard to pick yourself up and get out of it. Do you have any like thoughts for people about how they could start to make some steps in that direction? If they're like, oh, you just described me oh, that doesn't sound good. My health <laughs> is really at risk. Okay, well, I should do something about that. What, what could they do? Well, it's, um, you know, first of all, just to mention this, because I think it's important that I think there are a lot of people like I was who knew they didn't feel well, but they didn't, they wouldn't have said they were lonely because they were around people all the time. 
But I was lonely because the people I was around, it was all about tasks rather than really connecting, connecting as people. Mm-hmm. And we need that connection as people. We need to have people we can uh, share our struggles with, our, that we can also hear and encourage. It has to go both ways. The connection only works if it's, uh, we're both serving others and being served, you know, loving and being loved. Mm. Um, that's the only connection that truly works, which I think really fits well with your message too. And um, so I would say just a, a few things. It's number one, you know, reaching out and repairing relationships that are broken. We've had some of those in our, in our family and, you know, even what I'm working on now. Um, I think that's important. I, I think having a group of friends locally that you can get together with, um, you know, certainly my spouse, Katie, is my closest friend. Um, but I have a group of guys that I'm really close to and we see each other most Saturdays. Um, and there are a group of guys that I can really share, uh, you know, these are my highs and lows for the week and, and I can go to and, and get support. Um, you know, those guys really care for me and I care for them. We're just a really tight knit group and it's one of the best things I've ever had in my life to have that. So I would just encourage people to get involved in the community, try to, you know, develop a group of friends, uh, you know, look at faith communities. If you're open to faith, um, those can be great places to really connect with the support group. And if it doesn't exist, start one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I I really recommend it because we need that in this age of isolation that we're in. When we don't have it, we dysfunction. Yeah. And I've also heard that if you're in a really bad place, a good way to get out of it is to go find someone you can help. Because that kind of gets right. It's a good way. Like just think, well, who can I help right now? And just volunteer your time get engaged in your community, go be part of a big project that's bigger than you just for the sake of doing it. And that'll, I mean, that just kind of like kicks things in a different direction for you. Yeah. Social scientists have, you know, recognized it as a phenomena they call helpers high mm-hmm. and even little things, you know, going out in the community. And, um, I love, um, interacting with the cashiers at the grocery store. <laughs> and so my family makes fun of me because I know most of them and I know a little bit about their lives. And, um, but I enjoy that. I, it, this, it's been such a life changing experience for me that I don't want to live in a place where People are just indifferent to one another. I really love, you know, the town I'm in now, I can pretty much go anywhere and know someone. And sometimes I'll go into the grocery store and know four people and it takes forever to get out of there. But um, I, I do love that. I just feel like it really, um, you, you sink your roots deeper into a community. It just makes you more resilient. You There's more joy in life to have that. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. So I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about the ways you sort of balance uh, Balance is never quite the right word, but like, you know, there's work and there's life. Are you getting a little better at the integration of these things so that they're not, you're not letting your job take over and that you're still finding time for the family and friends aspect? Like, do you have routines or habits that help you kind of keep that perspective in mind? Well, I, I, well, number, well uh, let me just say a couple things. One thing, I, I make sure that I at least take one day off a week where I really just get away from everything. Now, that's going to sound pathetic to probably a lot of your listeners. Is that out of seven? <laughs> out of seven. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, so like on Saturday, Katie and I, we drove to New Haven, Connecticut. We walked around. We had lunch in a nice place. I was just telling you about we were looking at some things at Ikea. <laughs> so, um, you know, just getting away and doing things, uh, uh, you know, whether it's going to a movie or, you know, having meals with friends, um, 
those types of things are very restorative and um, I, I know I need that. So that's one thing. And then also Katie is good about um, making sure that I'm not always checking my cell phone at night. Uh, and I, I read somewhere recently, I think it was maybe in David Burkus book. Um, I'm hoping I'm getting this friend, right. Friend I'm, I, yeah. A friend of a friend, which I love that book. It was very excellent. Um, but I, I did read somewhere. I was thinking it was David's book that, um, about cell phones, putting your cell phone away. Oh, actually, that was probably another book. I'm sorry about that. But um, when you're having meetings with people, um, making sure you put your cell phone away because it does impair the connection you have with them, even just to have your cell phone out on a table. Mm-hmm. And that caught my attention. I thought, you know, I never, I always have my cell phone on a table. But now I've started to just put it in my pocket. So yeah. little, little things like that. Um, but I'm, you know, this is an area, it's a, a I really believe, Connection is a superpower and isolation and social isolation and loneliness are devastating in terms of health, not only individual health, but organizational health. And so I'm trying to be more intentional about it. But my drift pattern is toward isolation and to be a workaholic. So I I do fight that, but I've gotten so much better. One of the best pieces of uh, sort of advice on this topic I got was from a local politician in Boston who was saying that. Um, he suggested a book to me called uh, Community, The Structure of Belonging by Peter Block. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I said, well, what did you get from this book? Before, you know, before I even read it, I asked him, like, well, what are you recommending it for? And he said, well, what I got from this book is that as a politician, I have the power to convene people. And that is what makes it like such a great thing to be a politician. None of the other stuff. Like, if I call a meeting, people are going to show up. And that that is the power of being a politician. And I have to think about how I'm going to bring, you know, bring that to light and make sure it's always used for good. And I thought about it and I realized that that convening people is my superpower. That is what I do. Um, and thankfully I don't have to run for office to do it. I could just do it. Um, and so I'm actually, while you and I are recording this, I am going to two conferences this month, which is a big deal. It's two national events in one month, which is not what I usually do. And thinking about how to prepare for them and all of that. And I have, uh, for the first one, it's my fourth time attending. And I have, like, uh, I'm hosting two social gatherings, uh, attending a third. And I've got, like, three coffee or breakfast or lunch plans already scheduled. And it's not until, like, a week from now. And for the other one, I've never been to. And so I thought, well, okay, how am I going to, like, I don't know anybody. So I am hosting a meetup. <laughs> I just like picked a topic, threw it out on the Facebook group. Everyone was like, oh my God, I'll totally go to that. And it's so funny how people really are craving opportunities for connection. And in my mind, this is really simple. Like, I'm just going to look at the schedule. I'm going to pick a location. I'm going to pick a like, you know, what will draw us together kind of topic and I will host. Like, that's easy. And for other people, they're just like so glad that someone has rescued them from like wandering around trying to figure out who they can have dinner with. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you just, you just plan a dinner and you invite people. So I'd, I think more people could probably tap into the superpower. We all have it within us. Um, in my book, I actually discuss in detail like how to host a, a dinner at a conference as a, a sort of a method to this. But I really, I love how simple some of these things are that you're talking about, even like putting the phone away. Um, and David Burkus was actually, even if it wasn't from his book, it's a great book. He was a guest in the show as well. 
uh, right after his book came out, Friend of a Friend. And you know, I hope people go check out that episode. We'll put a link in the show notes to that conversation. I think he, he like you, has a lot of social science behind what he talks about. And um, you know, I just talk about sort of do these things and you guys have done the research behind why these things work, which I think is important for us to have some sense of that. What are some of your, um, what are your, some big takeaways that you're trying to like have organizations think about? Like, you know, do you start with an assessment? Do you like, what's your process when thinking about that? Yeah, well, just to share first, uh, we have a a framework that um, is very simple because one of the things we believe is most, you know, it's a lot of managers who are on the front lines or in the middle of the organization really have the greatest influence on culture. And um, they're not really clear really what exactly is culture anyway. <laughs> it's kind of an ambiguous term. So we came up with culture as attitudes, language, and behavior. In other words, the ways you think and feel, the language you use, and how you, your actions that, that combined, if you take those three things, you can deconstruct any culture. And then once you do, you can look in, at those, those three things and determine, are those attitudes, language, and uses of language and behavior, are they making people feel connected? Are they making people feel controlled, which is really toxic? And, or, or, or are they just making people feel that others are indifferent to them because it's all about task and results and not at all about relationships or caring for people. But it's that, it is that um, connection that comes from the attitudes, language, and behavior that pulls people together and makes them feel supported that really makes them resilient to cope with stress. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of feeling connected, people are very vulnerable to being their bodies putting them in a state of chronic stress response. And when that happens, there are parts of their bodily systems that don't get the blood glucose and oxygen they need to perform well. Parts of the brain that affect our short-term memory, our digestive system, the immune system, and the reproductive system are really short-changed as long as the body's in this chronic state of stress response. Now, those resources are over-allocated to the heart, the lungs, and the big muscles because the body's preparing to fight or flee the threat. Yeah. So it's very relevant. We have to have cultures where people feel supported and safe rather than threatened, or it will shave years off their life, not to mention their performance. You know, it may trigger a higher risk of suicide, a higher risk of violence in the workplace, a higher risk of abuse of power and uh, other things that are inappropriate. So it's uh, really important to get the culture right. And when a connection culture, we say we came up with a very simple way to remember it, which is when a leader communicates an inspiring vision about serving a cause greater than self, values people and gives them a voice, or in other words, vision, value, voice, that's when they connect. And it mm. really helps them perform at the top of their game. That's something that they can also hold on to and think about as they're, as they're working. It's, you got to give them something to aim for. So they, you know, when the sale blows them a little off course, they need to know where they're tacking back to. Yeah, um, vision, value, voice. It's really easy to remember. remember. And I mean, just a quick... Um, Quick example that's on my mind because I, I saw a U2 concert at Madison Square Garden recently, so I'm thinking about that band. But, you know, they're a great example of connection. They're four teenage boys who came together when they were 14 and 15 years old, and they weren't very good at that time. Um, you know, it wasn't unusual for them to be booed or laughed off the stage, but they persisted. They were really there for each other. 
Um, you know, their vision was to write music that uh, promoted human rights, social justice, and matters of faith. They really valued one another. They split their profits uh, equally between the four band members and their manager. Uh, they have helped each other through the storms of life. Um, you know, Edge, the lead guitar player, has, uh, went through a tough divorce. He had a daughter who was sick. You know, the band really supported him through that. Um, Bono's had death threats. The guys have been there to support him through that. Um, Adam Clayton developed a drug and alcohol addiction. The guys helped him overcome it rather than throwing him overboard. And um, uh, Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer, his mother was hit and killed in a car accident within about a year of the band forming. And Bono, who lost his own mother just probably within the previous year, uh, reached out and helped him get through a tough time. So those guys really do value each other. And you look at Bono, he gets a lot of attention as the megastar, but he also directs a lot of attention to his bandmates and says, you know, I, I, why would I ever leave these guys? Because they make me a better person. Mm -hmm. He's always talking about how great each and every one of them are. They're like a family to him. And he says, you know, families, people who have strong families tend to be the strongest people. And that's what our message really says. When you have that connection through family and friends, you're more resilient to deal with life storms. So you two is a great example. Even the voice part, they don't make, if any one of the band members strongly opposes a particular direction, they won't go there. It forces them to work through their differences. And they say it takes more time and it can be frustrating for sure, but it produces the best music and it keeps us together. And they have now been together over 40 years, all their adult lives. They've won more Grammy Awards than any band in history. And they have the highest revenue producing concert tour, um, U2 360 in all of history, surpassing the Rolling Stones. So they are wildly successful and they're healthy. They may have another decade to go. Yeah, which is a far cry from a lot of the other folks of those eras in the drug and alcohol and sort of disruptions that they had in their lives and they didn't have that support. It's such a great example of, you know, your connection culture. I, I actually, am, so I want to ask you some questions about how you apply this in your own life. Yeah. Um, so I asked this of all my guests, but because uh, it is, you know, it's a conversation about uh, building relationships, building connections, building networks. And I know that there's like those closest ties that you have people that you see all the time, like the, the family, uh, the friends that become family. Uh, and then they have sort of the colleagues that you work with and you see on a regular basis. And then there's sort of that, that next tier out. Those are the people that you might have seen at conferences or like work with once upon a time, but you've moved on to a different job, but you liked them and they liked you. How do you sustain and nurture your weaker connections um, in, your, in your network? Like, do you have any, again, like sort of habits or... Um, practices that help you sort of sustain those connections? Well, I'm a voracious reader <laughs> and uh, just, you know, all like even this week, I've been emailing with Robert Sapolsky at Stanford and a neuroscientist at the National Institutes of Health and Dan Russell who created the UCLA Loneliness Survey. So, you know, when I come across something that um, like I just saw, I read an article that um, was about how uh, nar about narcissism. And um, it reminded me of Kathy Caprino. Do you know Kathy? Mm -mm. Yeah. So she has a, a big following. She focuses on a lot of women's leadership issues. Really wonderful person. I need to connect you too, actually. And um, so I just, I sent her the email because I was thinking about her. I know that's an issue that's really important to her. So, you know, I try to look for ways I can help people. And, um, you know, oftentimes it's through sending them something or making a connection. 
that will help them further their goals. And I find the people I really feel, even if they're loose connections, so to speak, um, we share similar values. And I appreciate them as people and the work they're doing because it reflects that they care about people. Yeah, that's great. And do you uh, do anything to organize like in-person gatherings, either in your hometown where you seem to know everybody <laughs> or, um, or when you're traveling, when you're at a conference or traveling for work or speaking or something? Do you, do you sort of make um, any efforts to gather people in that way? Well, you know, I, I can't say I've done that. I read about that in David's book, and I know Dory Clark does that, right? Your friend, and I love her. You know, what a great heart and mind she has. Um, so, you know, it's got me thinking about doing that because I, I do have a huge network. It just feels like they're friends, basically. You know, I may not see them regularly, but even I was speaking at uh, Association for Talent Developments Conference out in San Diego. And I think I was able to go to like one session. The rest, it was just meeting up with people I knew and cl- cusp- you know, clients who were friends who were out there. Um, and it was, it was great. You know, that's what's energizing to me is just connecting with people. And, uh, you know, helping them in some way. So, but I thought that's a brilliant strategy. Um, and I think it, it's a win-win for everyone who's a part of it. Plus, it's just so fun to do that. So, I love that idea. Um, who, who actually originated that, Robbie? Do you know? Is that Dory or someone? No, I mean, this is, I think this is something people have been doing for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, Jason Mastermind Talks is somebody who, who definitely was an early writer of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I can think of a, a bunch of guests that I've had. You know, Chris Chembra does his his version of this in New York City. Um, there's some folks I know that are doing it down in Atlanta. I mean, it's just there's some good. It's just I, I try to really do it whenever I'm traveling, and actually, even when a conference comes to my town, and I, even if I'm not planning to go, but I know people who are coming in to speak at it, I'll suggest, hey, let me host a dinner, and they'll invite a couple of other speakers to come. And like, I've gotten tickets to the event through that process, but it's never my angle. Um, But I just think, you know, when interesting people are coming in, let me give them an opportunity to meet each other. They don't really know anyone in town. They're not going to get a, you know, have that much downtime to explore the city. Why don't I just organize something? And I I agree with you. I find it really fun. Um, And I I think what's helpful is the name that um, I, I am an outgoing extrovert and I feel like you're you're very exuberant as well. Like you're very, you know, I can imagine you just sort of talking to lots of people in the, in the supermarket and all that. But even if you're not that kind of person, even if you're a little more shy or more introverted, those are different scales. But if you fall in either of those directions, I think this hosting of a dinner, um, like Dory Clark, you know, is a is an introvert. And for her, it was really about managing her energy. Um, she was moving to New York City from Boston and she couldn't go to every single event and meet up and chamber meeting and, you know, who knows what. So she just did two dinners a month and, you know, built a strong, very strong, very quickly, a very strong network. Um, so I, I always talk about this as a concept because I think there's so much potential for people who don't really like the idea of networking and like big, you know, faceless crowds, Mm -hmm. but you, you know, go ahead and invite seven people to hang out with you and break bread. And it builds the connections that you're talking about and gives everyone that little boost that they need um, to go do better in in life. And I, I, now I'm going to start thinking about this as how I'm helping other people boost their own health. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Like this is, this is cool. It's like, it's nice to think I'm helping counter, the loneliness epidemic and the rate of suicide has gone up, um, which is a, a marked increase. Actually, is a is a study that I just saw. So 
I, I think these are, things are all connected, that we, we need to be more connected so that it doesn't continue to be the case. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And it's, um, yeah, I saw the only research I've seen on um, addiction and suicide, well, addiction research, um, there's a professor at USC in 2011 who did a meta-analysis on addiction and looked at 11 addictive behaviors and substances and concluded that about 47% of the American population has an addiction to one or more of those 11 substances that has serious negative consequences to their health. Wow. So it's a big issue. And I think, you know, it's, um, there was a book out, um, chasing the storm. I don't know if you've read that. It's, um, it's about addiction and it, there's a line in the book that says the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And I think there's, um, a lot of people have picked up on that. It just hit me in the forehead when I read it. It, it's so true that when we're when we're lonely, um, we don't feel well, and we look for ways. To, we still have mortgages to pay and kids' college to pay for, and all these things. So we have to figure out a way to get through our days. And oftentimes, we're relying on things that short term will help us cope, but long term, they're taking over our lives, and it's not a good road to go down. Um, but you know, unless people understand, they're hardwired to connect that's the natural path to go down mm-hmm. because we don't understand that, that connection. When we meet with a group of people in a city we're touring uh, or we're, we're visiting rather than stay in our hotel rooms, um, we're going to be much better for it, much healthier for it. Yeah. And um, so it's, um, um, this is a passion for me. I just feel like there are a lot of people who like me didn't realize they were lonely, but I was, and I was dysfunctioning and the wheels were coming off the bus in my life Mm. and I really needed to make a change. So I'm grateful that uh, it it came to my attention because I I clearly wasn't aware of it. I didn't realize why I was not doing well and I was developing addictions. Mm. So I want to ask you my most uplifting question. I hope it is at least when we get together a year from now and we're, we're celebrating all of your successes. I want to know, what accomplishments you'll have have achieved in the previous year. So so what are you looking forward to, Mike, in the next year? What's what's the things that are got you excited? Well, uh, you know, we've launched a, a new we have a holding company called Eplurbis Partners. That's a, a consulting firm. We launched a group called the Connection Culture Group to really scale our business. And we've uh, validated a scientific scientifically validated a survey that um, we know it looks at subcultures and organizations and says, is this a culture that makes people feel connected, that people are indifferent to them, or is controlling them? And so we're helping organizations really understand why this is important and where those subcultures are that need help and where those cultures are strong. So that's we really hope to get that out. We're creating a pulse version of it where people could just take uh, – you know, answer questions on their cell phones over the course of the year, and it yeah. ends up with the same results. We're launching an e-course. Um, we're always uh, looking at new. Uh, we're looking at new examples of organizations and leaders who are creating connection, and just seeing how they do it in their in their way, the language they use, the attitudes they embrace. You know, where there are similarities, and where they maybe develop something that's new and different that might apply to everyone who's interested in connection. So we just hope to keep advancing this and raising awareness of how important it is and helping those organizations uh, that are led by leaders who care about people and care about results. That's great. So where can people find you and follow your work? 
Well, my, uh, they can go to my personal blog that has a lot of information, michaelleestollard.com. Uh, and our company, uh, we have several company websites, but connectionculture.com is the place to go. Fantastic. And we're also going to put your LinkedIn and Twitter in the show notes as well. So people can reach out to you for the, what you're talking about really resonates. I want to make sure that, that they can uh, reach out to you and interact with you in those spaces. Um, we'll have all those links as well as links to your books uh, in the show notes. You'll find that at ontheschmooze.com. Mike, thank you so Robbie, much for thank joining you. us. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so great to get to know you. Yeah, ditto. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 111. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode with Michael, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.